Episode 248, Bruno Patience, engineer, entrepreneur, and coach. It is one of my favorite mistakes uh, that I can laugh about today, and I'm grateful for it because I learned so much. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Bruno and his work, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 248. As always, thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Hi, welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Rabin. We're joined today by Bruno Patience. He helps business leaders innovate profitably. He's a rare innovator who can claim he's worked on a regulation-defying freight train and an award-winning board game. So um, who knows where the favorite mistake story comes from, uh, those areas or, or elsewhere. Um, but in addition to his corporate experience, Bruno runs a community of entrepreneurs of several thousand members. Um, he's currently undertaking a doctorate in organizational change with a specific focus on the issues with innovation in large enterprises. Uh, Bruno has co-authored uh, the book, uh, Augmented Strategy. It's a practical guide to decision-making based on data and human intuition. So before I tell you a little bit more about Bruno, uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Mark. Uh, so happy to be here and <laughs> talk about mistakes. <laughs> Well, good. And, and boy, maybe you've got a funny story coming up or it's, it's good sometimes to be able to laugh about our mistakes. So I, I'm, I'm excited about the conversation here. Um, tell you a little more about Bruno. Um, he also has a master's degree in industrial engineering and management, um, specializing in production and quality engineering. And he has an advanced management diploma with specialization in strategy and innovation. Um, so like Bruno, I'm an industrial engineer. Um, maybe in different ways, in different contexts, there's some background also where Bruno has been trained by Toyota in corporate value creation and innovation. Um, so it'd be good to talk about that. And unlike me, he's a passionate practitioner of the martial arts since 1997. And unlike me, he lives in, in Norway. Uh, but you're of Croatia. You're, you're born Croatian. Is that correct, Bruno? That's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, Croatia is uh, one of those small, sunny Mediterranean countries, and Norway is one of those big, cold, dark Scandinavian countries. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, being late afternoon, it's, it's, it's not too dark yet in Norway, right? No, not yet, but soon. Let's <laughs> do um, So there's a lot to talk about. You know, I think, you know we, we have a lot of professional overlap, and I'm really curious to ask you um, all sorts of things. But the first question, you know, stick to my, my plan, my standardized work, if you will. Uh, Bruno, what's your favorite mistake? Okay. So um, I've been thinking a lot, and uh, I'm going to share one that's, let's say, uh, more engineering heavy. Uh, it is one of my favorite mistakes uh, that I can laugh about today. And I'm grateful for it because I learned so much. And that was uh, very early on in my career as an engineer. Uh, I was part of a team of product developers. We were all very young, very ambitious, very hungry. You know, we were biting. And uh, there was a customer, recurrent customer that came 
to our R&D department and uh, they said, hey, we want a product that's impossible. We don't want you to use any special alloys. We want you to use, you know, only plain steel. We want this product to be the lightest in the market. We want it to have very big volume. At that time, all similar products in the category that had large volume were also very heavy and very big. So they were asking for all of that. And of course, it had to be very cheap. (laughs) And And they wanted it fast, right? (laughs) Yeah, that that too, that too. And the thing was, uh, you know, as they were talking about it, we were listening and we had so many ideas what we could do about it. Uh, but what we noticed was that, that the client themselves, they were unsure. They were kind of asking for it, didn't expect to get it. But as I told you, like we were a bunch of young engineers and we took it really personally. <laughs> so, so we worked on it for days, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. And we were pulling, you know, all stops, so kind of. We were running simulations all the time. And just to give you a little bit insight for for the listeners, uh, imagine freight trains. Freight trains are basically big compositions that you put on rails, be it in the USA, be it in Europe. Uh, Yes, standards are different, but it's pretty much the same thing. And trains are actually designed for very, very long lifespan. We're talking about uh, 50 years plus, uh, which, you know, today is almost unheard of that you have products with such long Lifespans. So the business itself is a little bit weird because manufacturers of the freight trains don't actually earn a lot of money manufacturing freight trains. They earn on uh, maintenance, operations, etc., etc., etc. So here we were, not using any special alloys, running these simulations, uh, going making prototypes. People in production absolutely hated us. Like these guys, what are you making? This is <laughs> this is not possible to manufacture at scale. Uh, but we really wanted to make it, and we succeeded. We succeeded at making a freight train uh, that was the lightest in the market, uh, that had very fancy. Uh, solutions that was made only from plain steel uh, that had very large volume that was the fastest discharge in the market and once we came and reported back to the client they didn't believe us they didn't believe that 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 combination of physical properties was possible we had the working prototype it's not like we had it on a paper like we spent two weeks uh, in uh, full hazmat suits working with cement powder to see if it's discharging <laughs> properly, you know? And here we have a person not believing their own eyes. So it's, it's, it's not like we are promising them something on a computer. We are showing them, hey, here, here, is, here is the prototype. And they didn't believe us. And the rest of the market didn't believe us. So I was there standing, uh, my education, my master's in engineering, my years of, of, of studying and preparing to be this engineer. I, I did everything I knew. People I worked with did everything we knew to design the best possible product. And the buyer doesn't want to buy it because they don't believe it's possible. And to, to, to me, it was mind-blowing at that time. And why I say I'm so grateful for it today is because it made me realize that uh, innovation even improvement, product development isn't just about product, just about the process. It's so reliant on that human side, how we perceive reality, what we consider to be valuable. Like in, in Lean, if you want, we always talk about value, but what is value? It, it, it is almost a nebulous concept, this subjective concept. It is difficult to put objective measure of value. There can be objective measure of value agreed between two parties, but that doesn't mean that it will be the same 
uh, measure of value for some third party, even if you're in the same mm. market. Wow. I'm just going to pause here for a moment to take a sip wow. of water. Yeah, well, that that's a fascinating story. I've, I've certainly got follow up questions. Um, so, I mean, gosh, did 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 that that potential customer, the company that had asked for this, like, did they did they share the belief that it wasn't manufacturable at scale, or or did they really just believe the design? Was I, what did they think? I mean, what, I mean, I'm just curious to hear more about like what about it? Like you said, because it was there and it, it rolled down tracks, right? It didn't just sit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it rolled everything. Uh, we, we used a lot of non-standard solutions. So it definitely, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was more like engineer to order in uh, manufacturing parlance. It, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, manufactured to stock or something. So it was not the mass production, but it was also, you know, you have a potential client asking for a bespoke solution. So you prepare a bespoke solution. Uh, it, it was kind of, well, I cannot go now too much into negotiation specifics that, that would be <laughs> NDA territory. But what I can say is that what ended up is uh, we took our prototype and we paraded it basically for two years on all the fairs, relevant fairs and People did love it and eventually, you know, sales started trickling in. But as you know, with any engineering improvements, you know, get good enough engineers, they're going to reverse engineer it. And that is what, what happened because we used a lot of uh, mechanical engineering tricks. We played a lot with angles. Uh, you, usually to, to get that manufacturer at scale, you would just create a plain shell and you would just, you know, produce them uh, in uh, massively and just put them on, on a wagon while we said, okay, we will not do that. We are actually going to caref carefully calculate every angle. So we both reduce the weight of, of the train, but that we also increase the speed in which it discharges because it discharges on the bottom. So we were paying a lot of attention to, to these details. And as I said here, I learned another lesson that actually I realized just now as, as I'm speaking with you, and that is, our age played to our advantage, or not age, but later our inexperience played to our advantage because we were not ex we were experts in making freight trains. We were not experts in discharging uh, powder, so we had to go and learn how to discharge powder, and we didn't have preconceived notion notions on you know established solutions for doing that. Of course, we looked into them, but we quick quickly realized, hey, that's actually a bottleneck. So it's it, that that allowed us to kind of play play more with that. But as I said, after two years of parading it around, you get few engineers into it, take some pictures, make some measures, uh, and then when competitors start showing up, oh, now it's plausible. Now we can start buying. <laughs> wow. Um, had you and had you already moved on from that work by the point that it actually started selling, or were you still involved? Yes. In, in that industry yes. yeah so, so that that i moved on that, that was such a long process as i told you so kind of uh we were designing it, we were prototyping it that by itself wasn't so long uh which to me was fascinating a lot of people uh that are talking today and they're inspired by this lean startup agile methods etc and they think uh, this quick prototyping is only for digital products or or intangibles that that isn't true like we were prototyping like crazy with these are huge things. We are talking about tons of steel. 
Of course, you do not start prototyping 50 tons of steel tomorrow, but you have paper prototype, you have drawing prototype, you have simulation prototype, you have 3D models. So it's kind of, it's iterative all the time. And we were moving really, really fast. Uh, in this case, what was also really exciting was that you, you have a freight train that has to be uh, the same security measures as a nuclear power plant, according to EU regulations. <laughs> so, so, so you have a chunk of steel that's transporting powder that you must design so it meets the same safety regulations as a nuclear power plant. So that was an exciting wow. challenge as, as, as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, tell, I love the point about you know, the lack of experience helping you innovate and maybe challenge the way it's always been done or not being too beholden to certain assumptions that you, you see innovators in other industries taking that, that, that same approach of like, let's, let's take a fresh look and, um, and see what comes of it. But um, the, I think the, the, maybe the final follow-up question I wanted to ask you, Bruno, around this story was thinking about the process. I, I heard you describe them throwing some specifications over the, the wall, as they say, and then you worked on it and you prototyped and you iterated and you had something that worked. And like you said, they didn't believe it. Um, I'm asking you to speculate, but what, what, what do you think might have happened if that customer had been more involved in the iteration and the design process in, in a collaborative way instead of waiting for you to throw to throw it, well, we're not going to throw a train, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Waiting for you to just present it to them. What might well, have happened? I, I would like to think that uh, that would make them believe faster. That That's what I would like to think. Uh, the cynic in me also recognizes uh, and has learned the hard way that sometimes it's also about uh, politics, uh, relationship between the countries you know remember you, europe isn't one integrated market like usa so when it comes to large orders of specific types of products there is also relationships between the countries like oh should we really buy freight trains from croatia uh, if we buy 200 from czech republic we're also going to get that and that or if we go to i don't know poland and get that specific type of product we might also get discount on xyz so so th there is there is always more to the story, and this is <laughs> I'm realizing this is also another lesson I took from that project, like to be attentive to kind of bigger picture that's happening out there because it's relationships between the things that can sometimes unlock the magic, and they're yeah. not always obvious. Yeah, yeah, and as as engineers, we might have blind spots to matters of politics in this case maybe you know regional politics organizational politics relationships i mean there's so many stories uh, in in the history of innovation and entrepreneurship of a great technical solution somehow not finding its way in the market mm. so you're not alone unfortunately <laughs> And now I, I know you know you're not alone and um, your involvement nowadays. I want to shift and talk a little bit about um, your, your involvement with lean startup methodologies. And I, I it's blurry behind you, but I recognize the colors and the titles amongst your lean and Toyota books. I see Eric Reese's books, The Lean Startup and The Startup Way. Um, when, when you and I talked previously, I can't help but ask you about this, Bruno, um, you, you mentioned what might have been a mistake 
in in your initial assessment of the lean startup concepts uh, if, if, yeah. if you wouldn't mind telling us about that and, and maybe how you, how you evolved there because obviously you're now a big proponent of these approaches yeah. of course of course I, i'd be happy to and it's um you know, those are happy little mistakes, right? That that we're proud to to share. So, <laughs> uh, well, lean startup. When we think about it, uh, it came up around uh, 2008, late 2007. Eric Ries started blogging about it, etc. And uh, by that time, you know, I I really like lean manufacturing Toyota production system. I I was gobbling up, you know, all the books, all the work, everything. Uh, I couldn't travel to to USA, so I tried to grab whatever I could find in in Croatia or in in the region. And lean startup was one of those uh, terms that that popped up, and I chose to ignore it because at that time it was pretty crazy in the lean world. I would say, you know, there was like lean wardrobe. Uh, okay, two second lean is, is is fine for Paul Acres. There was some useful stuff, but there was a deluge of lean plus something. And to me, lean startup seemed also like okay, what what is this? I'll, I'll just let it go, and if it survives for a few more years, then it may be worth it. Because uh, I've always been of the opinion, you know, if it's good, it's going to come back. Because you, you see in the history, like, like you said, ideas don't find market, but then later they find market from somebody else. To me, it's the same thing with concepts like in the lean world that we have. If they're really good, they kind of uh, research again and again and again. Maybe not the same name, maybe not the same people, but they're going to come up. So it was around, I believe, it was much later. It was 2016 that I looked again into the movement and perhaps it was me being more mature at that time. I recognized that in Lean Startup, uh, there is a set of processes and procedures for product and business development that are integrated and that are so lightweight uh, that you can teach them and people can use them even without big technical background. Because if you look at, uh, for example, a lot of things that came from the lean movement and associated quality movement like quality function deployment designed for six sigma uh, lean product and process development all amazing processes a set based concurrent engineering uh, trees theory of inventive problem solving all great but all very engineering heavy so if if you brought them let's say i don't want regulars regulars doesn't sound very nice but if if you, if you if you brought it to your colleagues who do not have engineering background you know, it was overwhelming. Like, what are you, like seven matrices I need to fill out? And it, it's, it's like, how do I read this? It's going in all those directions. And then you had processes like Clean Startup that was very lightweight. Decide what you want to learn, uh, create some prototypes so you learn it as quickly as possible and try to spend as little money. And in parallel, you had the design thinking developing, which was also kind of put yourself in the customer's shoes, speak with people, try to make sense out of it. So you had this very, very lightweight approaches that get you almost the same results as those very traditional, very uh, power-oriented approaches with existing structures that demand a lot of work. And that also, frankly, came with a lot of elitism. So it's kind of people in those circles expected you to do it in that specific way and no other way. And if you transgressed, you were punished. <laughs> and, and you had lean startup design thinking, which were much more inclusive as attested by their massive spread as grassroots movement. Mm-hmm. But now I'm, I'm, I'm going like, in all the directions. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, a couple comments. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was part of that 
deluge of lean something. 2008, that exact time frame you were talking about was the first edition of my book, Lean Hospitals, not to get sidetracked on that. But I, I can understand, um, and, and this has happened a lot in healthcare, where, where, where people um, sometimes are skeptical of something that seems a little too trendy. And I, and I think doing something because it's trendy is probably the worst idea, the worst reason to adopt an idea, whether that's lean healthcare, lean hospitals, or, or, or lean startup. And, you know, one of the thought you talked about those, those waves of adoption, I think that absolutely happened with lean manufacturing from in the eighties, people kind of learned about it in certain ways. And then there was a wave in the 1990s and a wave like each wave, I think brought better levels of understanding of kind of like the, the total pick, the total package of what these ideas are approached. So uh, what these ideas are built upon. So I think sometimes, you know, if, if an organization's wait, waiting for the second wave, they might get kind of what, what has been collectively evolved into a better version of, of the methodology. So I know, I, I know I, I threw a lot of thoughts and reactions back at you, but I, I'll, I'll invite, you know, if, if you've got other um, thoughts to share about any of that. No, I mean, I completely, I completely agree. So I remember, you know, you were on the inside. A lot of that was happening in USA. I'm, I'm younger guy in Europe. Kind of, you know, I, I felt like standing from the side, and I tried to to grasp. I, as I said, uh, I'm a Croatian, so I did grow up and I studied in Croatia. Then I studied in Norway as well, and I got lucky uh, to do some training with Toyota. And before that, uh, I was studying a lot lean manufacturing, so I had some specific expectations. You know, oh, Toyota, finally, like, wow, I, I get, I'm coming to the source. And and then I get lectured about uh, Japanese toilets, and I'm I'm like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what? Yeah, I I don't understand. Like, the, I I asked this guy, what lean? He's lean. And he has translator. What was this kid talking about? And and I'm so confused. <laughs> and then later, you know, as I started digging into more and more, then I realized, okay, there there were just so many different waves. And as you said, in the 18th, dif- different books got translated, but only few actually picked up on on becoming popular. And then those made it in into the main body. And then it turned into a business. And then it got merged with Six Sigma. And then we got that abomination leading Six Sigma. That has well, nothing and, and to just do to with interrupt it. for a second, I, I don't think it was the lead people who grabbed Six Sigma. I think it was the other I, way around. <laughs> I, I think everybody in Lean knows that. So, 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 so yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's uh, abominable. But uh, I that's not to say that I don't like engineering statistics and the, the core quality. I think those were brilliant. Like I, Wow, wow, that that core has survived to today. I think it's under underappreciated, and I'm actually using a lot of those traditional quality tools. You know, Ishikawa Seven quality tools, uh, basic statistics, certification, etc. I use it in my innovation work all the time. Those tools are so simple, but they allow you to explore large uh, da- data sets without extensive statistical training, which is. Very, very helpful. Even in the time of big data and AI, ChatGPT, please interpret this for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad this isn't a debate or argument show because we're, we're agreeing <laughs> on a lot of things. Um, but, you know, there, there's similarity in our backgrounds, in our training. And you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit more, perhaps, about what you learned 
from Toyota. And I think there's often this misunderstanding or an assumption, you know, people associate Toyota and lean manufacturing or the Toyota production system as being really rigid, highly structured, only appropriate to highly repeatable, high volume processes. And again, I, I think that's that's incorrect. Um, what, but what, what I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts on what you learned from Toyota about experimental improvement, learning from mistakes, things that are kind of the basis of Eric Reese's lean startup methodology. Yeah, yeah. I, I see really tight connections there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's what I learned from, for example, when I was part of that uh, training and projects, etc., with uh, Toyota in Europe, uh, I, I didn't learn a lot what I would expect to learn kind of uh, when I was reading Toyota production system, when I was going to, to my uh, lean manufacturing lectures and etc. cetera. Uh, it, it was really a lot about, it's even hard to, to put it in words. It was almost nebulous to, to a state. It was kind of very disassociated, very uh, pushing for out of the box, very artistic. You know, there was a lot of emphasis on on kanji, on calligraphy, on uh, gentleness of movement, on collaboration, cooperation. So to me as a young engineer, that specific project was very interesting because it led me to learn a lot of things that I did not expect I would be learning or that I thought is important to learn because during that project, I, I made one of mistakes that are not my favorite i'm i'm ashamed of that mistake but it it made me better today so as as part of that because uh, that was a student project so they were gathering students from different universities and different uh, faculties so it wasn't just engineering students you had uh, chemical students you had students from philosophy from social studies uh from marketing art schools etc and because at the end of the day we were asked to come up with the car concepts and we were working in teams and we were discussing that. And I remember, so as we were coming up with concepts, one person came up with this specific concept and I said, this is so stupid. You shouldn't even have recommended it. Mm. And, 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 you know, I could say, okay, he, he was young, he was an engineer and all of that. But, but later on, I realized, you know, I, I heard that person with, with my comment. Like, I, I made the person cry because of, of my feedback. And that was not my intention. My intention was to disagree with the proposed concept, not to hurt the person. So I do not, I do not regret disagreeing with the concept. I regret hurting the person. But I am thankful, I'm grateful that I recognized what I did. So then, you know, through years of, of work and, and working on that, I became better at giving feedback. I, I realized, and today I like to say, you know, go hard on ideas, but always gentle with people. So it's like, I might disagree with something that Mark said, but we are going to, I'm going to be attacking what Mark said. I'm not going to be attacking Mark. I, I must always respect Mark to the maximum. I, you know, I have to take that into consideration. And that's why I love when working with, with ideas, concepts, whatever, I like putting them on paper, whiteboard, pick, pick your thing. And then you and I together, we're going to beat up that paper. You know, we're going we're gonna to take this idea and we're going to crumple it and we're going to throw it into garbage. We're going to go hard on it, but always respectful to each other. 
And I think in, in retrospect, when I look at, for example, Toyota production system and how they, how they came together and worked on the manufacturing line, you know what they say, respect for people. Like they never attack the person who made the mistake. They aggressively attack what was the problem. That that's that's that same thinking, uh, except I had to learn it the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, Bruno, I I appreciate you telling that that story. Um, you know, especially um, you know, and I understand the or I can appreciate the feelings around that where you said it was a mistake you were ashamed of. I appreciate you sharing that um, anyway, and and more importantly, um, you know, we'll, 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 as we try to do here on the podcast, celebrate your recognition of the mistake and, and learning from it. Cause some people repeat the same mistake over and over again, or if someone gets upset, they'll blame that person and say like, well, look, I was just being honest. They should toughen up in, instead of, I think, reflecting, I appreciate you thinking about, well, what, what does respect for people mean? It, it, it doesn't mean, I mean, it means we can challenge people, but like you said, do so in a way that's respectful. And I could even see like, there's this gray area where, Someone might say, well, that's a stupid idea. But the receiver of that message hears, wait, they called me stupid. You know, I mean, it, there, it's it, we, we can't always have that. And that's why I think words and approach matter. You know, the Toyota people might ask challenging questions to try to maybe lead someone to draw their own conclusion of, OK, we might not use the word stupid, but OK, yeah, we're going to crumple that up and throw it away. We can be a little bit more. Um, helpful, I think, instead of just saying, well, I know best, I know it's stupid. Because the person saying it's a stupid idea could be wrong, too. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> that could be a different um, mistake. Um, so um, I'm really, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And that's, that's something uh, a lot of us, you know, it's, it's an ongoing challenge of um, the art of um, you know, as I heard a, a Toyota person say recently, uh, critique the process instead of critiquing the person, a different way of saying, you know, what, what you said there. Um, so I also want to ask, cause I, uh, I can see it behind you and I know this is one of the other things you've been involved in, uh, board games. Oh, I see, uh, playing lean, uh, playing lean to, um, uh, related to lean, startup method. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the board game. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to share too many mistakes, but you're, you're being generous in your storytelling that, that, there, that there was a bit of a mistake in, in the build up to trying to launch that game. If you don't mind sharing about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, playing lean, as you said, is a physical board game for teaching uh, the lean startup method. And it came to life because my friend Simon, uh, he was running a company at that time and they were doing a lot of, uh, you know, agile training. And in the, in the training, they used a lot of board games. Uh, the reason board games are good is because they're basically a bridge between on the job training and classroom training. Mm-hmm. So kind of they're right in between because our brain has difficulty differentiating experience and emotions in the game or simulation versus reality. So mm-hmm. as educational tool, they are great because you create this very real uh, chemical processes in the brain. And then you as a facilitator or teacher, you can connect that to on the job to really improve the learning. That, that's more of a theory of why, why games work. In our case, yeah. we knew games work and we wanted to create a game for Lean Startup because th- there was nothing in, in the market. 
And of course, uh, as I already talked about, prototyping, a lot of prototyping, uh, creating uh, first versions, uh, just printing out paper, putting colored sticky notes, etc. And we tested it with many, many people to see if the rules work, if the people actually learn Lean Startup, uh, can they do something practical after the workshop? And it all worked out really fine. Like, okay, we managed to reduce the uh, the complexity of the game. It was very playable. It was so playable, people wanted just to play it, even uh, not learn. <laughs> uh-huh. And then we decided, okay, let's go to the crowdfunding platform. Like, let, let's try to crowdfund. We don't want to take on investors. Uh, we do not want to bootstrap it. We want to go on crowdfunding. And we launch, and of course, the game flops. It, it doesn't manage to, to raise enough funds, but it did raise almost half of the funds. So what we started looking into is like, who are these people that actually left their money and why? And this is where we found our big mistake through speaking with actual paying customers. Our big assumption was that our buying customers are going to be the players of the game, people who want to learn Lean Startup. But the only people that were actually leaving money were educators, lean coaches, agile coaches, corporate trainers, university professors. So people who need, who basically had the same need as us, we want the teaching tool that will make it easy. We don't want to give them Eric Ries book. We don't want to uh, have, you know, four hours of lecture. We want them something experiential. And then we started asking, okay, what is important to you? We, we took care of the players. So that is what we were testing extensively. But we didn't test anything, you know, with the actual educators. And this is where we learned, for example, it has to have top-notch supporting materials. Rule book must be very understandable. Uh, there must be slides that they can reuse and easily adjust, put their logo, a university uh, logo, whatever. Uh, it needs to be backed by a thought leader because it's very important that if they're... Um, asking for funding that they can say this is stamp of approval from that and that person. And another thing, the third thing was it has to look good on a shelf. Like you shouldn't be ashamed of it because if you think about a lot of lean games and I'm trying not to throw any shade, uh, a lot of them look horrible. It's like, you know, that, that uh, it's not even stock art. It's, it's clip art kind of clip art, just printed. A lot of them are not even games. So we partnered with actually, you know, not an illustrator, but a professional who is an agile professional, innovation professional, who is also an artist. So, so we had, you know, the whole package and we made something that is also aesthetically pleasing. And that is, this is not a mistake I'm ashamed to share because then we came back to the crowdfunding. It was Boom, you know, uh, extremely successful. A few years later, completely sold out. Version 2, almost completely sold out. Hundreds of facilitators around the globe. So it was a very good early mistake. And we were lucky that it happened. And we were lucky that those people wanted to speak with us. Because, you know, it's not like uh, we could chase them down. We could only send an email and give a phone call. Hey, would you like to share more? Because this failed, but we want to learn why did you invest? Right, right. Well, that, that's, that's a great story too. And I, I, I hear, I think, some learning from uh, the freight train um, design process, um, not direct parallels, but, but looking beyond just the technical. Right. You can say, well, this game is technically perfect, but feedback might have said, well, it seems too complicated, uh, aesthetically 
unappealing. Like, you know, it, it's not like you looked at the, the, the bigger picture of what that product needed to be. So, I mean, I, it seems like uh, maybe, maybe not directly so, but some learning from, from earlier mistakes. Am I reading too much into it or is that? It's, it's a good connection. It's a good connection we were definitely, I mean, then it was, we, it's always we, it's, it's never alone. Uh, but yeah, I was definitely bringing uh, more of that and other mistakes I learned. And it was, um, we knew it was important to involve the customer here. I wouldn't say that we made the mistake of not involving the customer. We made the mistake of not recognizing the other customer or the right customer. And that is one of the big lessons of the Lean Startup itself, like pivot, but pivot based on data and insight. And one of the things when when we set out to make the game, we said it is a game about teaching Lean Startup. It should only be developed using Lean Startup principles. So (laughs) that's why we were testing so much. And in a way, it's it was good that we made this mistake because then within the game itself, we have a good teaching story. Like we, we can literally point out to, hey, th- this is a very good example where you have multiple customer segments and why it is critical to as early as possible test with all of them and realize who are actually end users and who are actually economic buyers because they might not be one, one-to-one and you have to satisfy both if you want to create a successful startup venture business etc 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 yeah yeah um I, I think it's really it's interesting to look at that assumption that you were testing in in the marketplace the assumption of who was going to be buying it and and you know likewise recognizing um a problem with the assumption and, and, and learning and, and adjusting or, or pivoting because, you know, you, you have the contact information of the people who bought. The, the one challenge is I, I think you probably never get the contact information of the people who decided not to buy to get their feedback. But it, it sounds like if, if, if I hear you right, when you went back and, 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 and it sold out and uh, it sounds like you, you adjusted based on feedback from the early buyers, not trying to chase not continuing the chase, the ones you thought were going to be the buyers. Is that, is that correct? That's, that's, that's absolutely correctly. And you're very correct. Maybe, maybe it was the wrong mistake. Maybe if we focused on, uh, on the ones that decided not, not to buy and tweak the product to meet their needs, maybe it would have been a completely different story, but unfortunately no crystal balls. <laughs> well, sure. So I, I wasn't trying to say it was a mistake. I think it's just that fascinating challenge of, um, you can talk to the people you have the contact info uh, from. It would be a different process to try to invite contact from people who decided not to buy. That would be a different process. And and again, like maybe maybe you stumbled into exactly the right market because it, it's quite possible that trainers, consultants, educators would would be, you know they they required more content, like you said, but maybe they're willing to pay a much higher price than a consumer board game purchase. You know, That is 100% correct because the product for them is almost 10 times more expensive. <laughs> and it should be uh, many, 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 many times more valuable. Back to, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, the lean concept of you know value is defined by the customer and people get in trouble saying, well, we have to charge this price because here's how much it costs us to develop it. Like, yeah, yeah. the market might, the market uh-huh. doesn't care. No, no, no. We went simple. We said uh, for playing lean board game, 
getting like facilitator training and getting the board game, uh, it has to pay back after doing one playing lean workshop. That that's it. So and that that's that's what we say. You become playing lean facilitator. You run one paid playing lean workshop. You paid back your whole investment. Everything after that is pure profit. So it's kind of uh, I, it's very valuable deal <laughs> compared to, because. And now we're going into business model specifics. Uh, when Simon and I were discussing it, you know, both of us have our, let's say, main jobs. I'm a consultant. He's a chief product officer in, in his company. So playing Lean for us is something fun, you know, a way to, to express our creativity, uh, to do something gamified, etc. Our well-being does not depend on the success of, of playing Lean. It is nice if it's successful. It is okay if if you know if if it doesn't if it stops selling etc so th- that also reduces the pressure for example you know you have businesses that their whole core business is creating educational board games and then they must keep on pushing out keep selling etc in my opinion uh you know playing lean is a very niche product it is a niche of a niche like lean startup is is small niche and then you have educational board game for that small niche yes uh, it is used by people to make psychological assessments to to train entrepreneurial skills etc it's used for many different purposes but when we set it out it was for a very small niche it brings joy when you see people use it creatively and differently etc but there is freedom in uh, not having to have this a massive smashing success it's nice when it is though (laughs) yeah of course well, I'm, I'm going to go learn more about that, Bruno. I'm within that niche of people who maybe could help bring that game to people through through workshops. And uh, we'll put links in the show notes. You can learn more at playinglean.com. Uh, um, you know, Bruno, this, this has been um, a lot of fun. I appreciate you being willing to share so many stories with us and the reflections and the lessons learned. Um, I, so I want to thank you for your, your willingness to share. And Mark, thank you for inviting me and thank you for creating space for discussing uh, mistakes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to do so. Um, so again, we've been joined uh, Bruno Patience. Um, you can find uh, links and uh, more information about him uh, in, in the show notes. So again, thanks so much. Well, thanks again to Bruno Patience for being such a great guest today. Wonderful conversation. To learn more about Bruno, his work, uh, the playing lean board games and more, Look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 248. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.